Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. This is a joy, particularly for September. Edward Morris is at Citigroup working with a team of very smart people, and they're working on the definitive deck for petroleum that will become widely tweaked and available into September. Ed Morse, your deck, which we've taken a glance at, is a bombshell document. You say there's going to be oversupply, that there will be many regime changes. What's the regime change in oil I need to focus on? Well, I think there are three bits of a, of a, of a fundamental change. Uh, the first one is to just look at home, at the U.S., where uh, for the last decade, uh, the U.S. production was growing at a remarkable rate. In fact, the U.S. in that 10-year period supplied 73% of the total world energy incremental supply. And that's just not going to happen again. I'm tempted to say ever again, but really not again. Uh, and uh, that's going to change things a bit. The U.S has had a really significant impact on the world. Uh, it put OPEC plus into a defensive mode. Uh, they are still in a defensive mode, and I think they'll remain in a defensive mode. And there's a, a second issue that I think is a bit of a regime change, namely that OPEC was really flourishing because of the ability of the OPEC producers to say, we don't have to worry about today so much. It's tomorrow that we will have our day because demand is going to be rising forever. Right. And, uh, and the supply will be ours. So now, both on the supply side and on the demand side, right. that's being challenged. And on this day of UN action on climate, 3,000 plus pledges is well. We've observed that China has coal. That's got to get fixed. But also the U.S. needs to step up some form of cogent policy. What is the more efficacious policy for the United States on climate change and linking it into your world? Well, I think we're getting a head start on it. I think we need the government there to create a framework. Governments didn't have any framework before the Paris Agreement, uh, and they, they got a framework, and the bond market simply skyrocketed for sustainability. Right after that, the Paris Agreement said, hey, we need three to uh, $5 trillion of investment. Uh, in 2019, the bond market only gave $250 billion worth of issuance of sustainability bonds. 2020 was a half a trillion, and this year we're on our way to a trillion. So uh, We need more government framework to get the infrastructure build that we need. We need infrastructure build to sequester carbon dioxide. We need the infrastructure build to get hydrogen from where it's produced to where it's needed. And I think that's the challenge to decarbonize in the country. To dovetail this out into your call on oil, have we seen peak oil demand already or do you foresee that upcoming in the next few years? We don't think that there's uh, peak oil demand yet, but we think it's coming. There's a bit of a debate on it. The question to us is really a question of when. We were on a track to hit 110 million barrels a day of demand, all else equals by 2030. Um, and because of policies already put in place, not because of the pandemic, but because really of the policies put in place by China, the US and Europe, that will be at, a, at the most probably 107 million a day 
and we think that the policies that are unfolding will get it to 104. So the, the, the pace of growth of oil demand, the elasticity of demand for oil to GDP is really falling much more rapidly than people thought, uh, which puts us really into getting to that peak oil demand period uh, into the early part of the next decade. This is part of the confusing backdrop, the list of unknowns that you lay out as we look at oil prices currently, w WTI, $65.61. Uh, the path of change, people were talking just two months ago of $100 a barrel of oil uh, foreseeable in the next few months. Could we still be there or has the scenario changed? No, I think the scenario has not changed. What we're seeing is a lumpy reaction to, uh, to things that might happen. Uh, we just look at the supply and demand balances. Inventories are drawing at a record rate. Uh, and, that, and, and they're drawing at a higher rate this month than they were last month. Uh, and we think that next month it'll still be at a high rate. So inventories are really tight. They're tighter than where the price of oil is today. And that's because financial flows uh, have gotten a little bit short, a little bit prematurely, partly because of the discussion you were having a little earlier, partly on the basis of an assumption that rates are gonna go up and growth is gonna go down. Uh, but really the market, if you look at a snapshot of the here and now is a very tight market. So uh, we think prices are gonna go up uh, again to the, to the mid to high 70s before uh, before we have yeah. that regime change that I was talking about coming in. Ed, eight years ago, you and Anthony Yuan wrote a really important, widely acclaimed document on China and coal. And you said, look, at some point this ends. Give us an update right now on what to me seems to be the global elephant in the room in commodities, China and coal. What's 2025 look like? Well, we still think that it's going to look better. I mean, the, the China issue has never been one of climate change. It's been one of pollution. And uh, under social policies, the government has to deliver clean air and clean water. Um, and they're going about as fast as you can go to use every means possible to uh, electrify the country, uh, to move off of fossil fuels. Uh, but they, they just can't do it fast enough, and that's given rise to uh, to more coal demand. That coal demand, though, recognizes higher BTU content, lower sulfur emission content uh, coal. So it's not, not all that bad. But uh, yes, the China push in the post-pandemic revival uh, has put a great stress on the growth of power generation. And you can see it not only in coal, but in uh, but in mm -hmm. other fossil fuels and natural gas in particular. But uh, it, that will slow down as the economy changes. Ed Morris, change thank you so path. much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Really look forward to that important definitive deck from Citigroup on commodities uh, and oil here uh, in September as well. Let's turn now to Bill Lee, Milken Institute Chief Economist. Bill, let's start right here. How much progress have we just made towards substantial progress at the Federal Reserve? Everyone's trying to figure out how much pressure there is in that labor market. And those good numbers on Friday really went a long way to giving a positive picture. One thing that I should point out, and maybe Lisa has already pointed out, is that most of the wage gains that we're worried about uh, really go into the low-wage workers. The Atlanta Wage Tracker has shown that the first quartile is getting all the wage gains, but the fourth quartile, the higher-paid workers, are actually having a very steady uh, set of uh, wage increases. And uh, the job gains uh, are really in those 
entry-level jobs uh, where they're missing people because people have actually upgraded themselves. So when you actually look at how much progress we've made in the labor market, we've done a lot to restore the hospitality and leisure industry, yes, but those are the low-wage sectors, and they should be getting higher wages. There are a lot of productivity gains, though, have come about where companies have really eliminated a lot of these jobs and we're going to find a lot of people not getting jobs and the fed is really concerned with not maximum employment but the maximum extent of employment and that's where we're going to see the tension at the fed the hawks are going to say a lot of progress has been made but i think the chair and 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 law brainer uh, the possible next chair is going to be saying you know we still have a lot way to go to maximize the extent of employment gains Bill, you, you nail the zeitgeist right now. Greg Vallier writes it up in his morning note where nothing else matters but perceived or future wage inflation. And then you go to productivity. Can we observe productivity in real time? Don't we have to wait to see if it happened? Well, Tom, as you know, it's the hardest thing to measure, especially in the service sector, which is the largest sectors in our economy. Uh, but one thing to keep in mind is that the federal government has decided to balance its budget or, or, or come raise revenues by corporate taxes. What's that going to do? Cut back on investment and cut back on these productivity enhancing investments we need to keep inflation in check. So I think the, the real danger is that we'll look at where prices are going and we see these low wage, low productivity jobs dominate the wage increases and we don't have the offset coming in from the high productivity uh, kind of investments that, that balance off the, the, the high pressure from wages. So what does this mean in terms of Fed policy and what you think it will be uh, in the months ahead versus what you think it should be? I think Chair Powell and, and most of the FOMC is still concerned that once we get past these bottleneck price increases, we're going to come back to the world where there's deflationary pressure. If we have the kind of productivity gains we've seen in the last two or three years, but if the corporate tax increases that are being put in place, not just the U.S., but around the world, start to cut into the kind of investments we need to keep uh, productivity uh, up, then we're going to have a serious inflation problem. And as you mentioned, a stagflation problem where growth is starts to, 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 to hit that, that upper bound of maybe half a percent to one percent, and we start to see prices continue to rise. Bill, we've got to talk about China then. How big is China and what is going on right now a factor in what you're discussing? I think that's absolutely critical because everyone is looking at China as a leading indicator for where we're going. China came out of COVID fairly uh, early, uh, but right now they're suffering the consequences of their policies, which is every time they see a rise in cases, they shut down the economy and that kills any kind of growth. And right now, the fear is that the Delta variant is going to cause China to shut down yet again and and cause growth to, to fall way below where their planned targets are. You see the central bank and the fiscal authorities putting in place a lot of insurance policies to bolster any kind of fall, uh, fallback in consumption, which is really the weakest sector in China right now. Is there a track record that shows they can do that? Can they succeed at policy to boost and sustain consumption? One advantage of a command economy is they'll be able to boost public consumption, but the disadvantage is that people don't have the confidence that it's really safe to go back to work and, and people will not be going out to the restaurants. The people in, in the cities of Shanghai, Guangdong uh, and Shenzhen are going to stay at home and say, hey, it's not safe to go out. So, so we have a split in China where public consumption, public investment is pushing like crazy. They're, they're financing it with a lot of debt, but the private sector really isn't following through. Bill, great to hear from you. As always, William Lee there, Milken Institute Chief Economist.
So let's bring in Brian Levitt, Invesco Global Market Strategist. Brian, I'll characterise your view for you just briefly, and then you can give me the latest. I understand you're looking for that return to trend growth through next year. We'll make that progress towards trend, and you're looking for growth to take over in terms of leadership. Any challenge to that from the data over the past week, Brian? I think maybe over some weeks, but not necessarily over some years. So, Jonathan, when you think of where the 10-year was at 112 and a move back up to 128, I wouldn't be surprised to see further improvements in this economy as we get more American adults vaccinated. And so should rates be at 128? Probably not. Um, could they be somewhat higher than here? Yeah. And in that environment, then cyclicals and value-oriented parts of the market will do well. My point is to say that it's, we're ultimately going to stabilize uh, to a, a more modest growth rate. It, it's nothing structural changed. We had a, a disastrous uh, coronavirus driven recession. We recovered from it and we're navigating around getting back to a more stable level of growth. So my view is as you're looking out beyond the next weeks or the next couple of quarters, start to contemplate what the structural picture looks like. And it should continue well, to be a, a modest growth environment. Okay, fine. It's a modest growth environment. Michael Darda agrees with you over at MKM Partners in his morning <laughs> note. Great. Brian, what's it mean for corporations? I mean, life goes on. State where the gloom crew has it wrong. So what it means is that growth, it'd be very similar, Tom, to what you saw from the middle of 2011 through the end of 2019, is that growth is strong enough to be supportive of corporate earnings, but it's not so strong that it leads to big excess, significant inflation, you know, meaningful Fed tightening. So it creates a cycle that could go on for some time. Now, some corporations will be better positioned for this than others. If you're a structurally advantaged growth business, similar to what we saw in the last cycle, you're likely to benefit from it. If you're the type of business that requires higher sustained economic activity, then you're unlikely to receive a, a fancy multiple on the type of earnings that you're able to generate. As an investor, do you like this kind of chart that Lizanne Saunders of Charles Schwab put out this morning showing that share buybacks in the United States if the S&P 500 are running at near the fastest pace ever, almost eclipsing 2018? Is that a good thing from your perspective? Well, it certainly tells us that businesses are flush with cash, and it, it certainly tells us that um, you know, it, it's certainly a tailwind to markets. Now, would I would I rather see, you know, more businesses use that money to put it to productive use? Sure. But it, it's indicative of a, of a corporate environment that's probably thinking similarly along the same lines that I'm thinking is that, you know, there's we're not going into a robust growth environment and, and they're deploying cash in a way that they think is appropriate as a result of that. I do wonder also, Brian, to what degree those buybacks were delayed from last year into this year. True. Absolutely. I agree with that. That's got to be an issue, Lisa, going forward from here. How can we really take this year's data for things like buybacks and capital returns after the year that we've just had? Yeah, but why do they have money now from uh, after a year like last year? <laughs> they have it because they borrowed all this money and they're using some of that borrowed money to do the share buyback. So I agree with you. It is deferred. However, the fact that we can just go right back to our old plans sure. with a huge gap in the middle of what we missed. But you know better than most that a lot of the money that's been raised in the market has been for refinancing in credit that the debt piles of some of these companies, they've pushed the maturities out, they've lowered rates, and leverage ratios aren't moving in the wrong direction, they're moving in the right direction. All right, so Brian, can you weigh in on that? Because right now we're seeing that certainly in the investment grade universe. It's a little bit different though in the high yield universe, isn't it? 
Well, yeah, but again, for the most part, these businesses are borrowing this money at very low interest rates. And to Jonathan's point, they've pushed these maturities out. So you're not looking at a wall of maturity. Um, you're not looking at a very onerous interest burden for a lot of these businesses. I mean, it's pretty similar to households for those of us that refinanced. Um, you know, you, you take advantage yeah. of, a, of these opportunities when they come to you. Brian, the FA mode on Bloomberg tells you a lot about use of cash, about share buyback. Just as one example, and I don't mean to pick on Amazon other than that their CapEx is, you know, nobody can get a handle on the amount of money Amazon is spending to grow, grow, grow. But from 2019 is the last normal year. There's something on the order of published free cash flow of $22 billion growing out to $25 billion, and then you skip 18 months or whatever because of the pandemic, and the new working number in the future is $45 billion. <laughs> now, Amazon's Amazon, but that permeates through the Invesco system, doesn't it? It does. And, and again, it's back to talking about these advantaged businesses and these businesses that can generate cash flow in these types of an environment. And, and if you think about where we are, yeah, corporations have use the, the low um, interest rate environment to borrow money, but also think about what's going on in the earnings picture. It's not as if this hasn't been a good fundamental story for businesses. We're coming through a very robust earnings quarter. Um, as pent up demand came back into the economy, I, I don't think that we don't continue to see earnings and uh, grow at these at these levels. But you know, back to my original point, a, a more stable growth environment can still be very supportive of corporate earnings. It can still be very supportive of those businesses that can generate cash flow. Brian, good to catch up with you. Thank As you. always, Brian Levitt, Invesco Global Market Strategist. Claudia Sam joins us now with the Jane Family Institute with exceptionally important Twitter flow. You can really learn a lot, a lot particularly on the microeconomic foundations of all this blather we talk about each and every day. Claudia, I want to go to the heart of the matter right now. Shock and awe, if you raise wages, good things happen, like consumption sustains. Tell us where we are now in the oomph to raise wages. Yeah, so I think we've seen a lot of encouraging progress. Frankly, surprising. I mean, after years and years of low wage yeah. growth and really tough conditions, like we're seeing it. So we know it is possible. What I want to underscore is we do not have the headwinds to keep this going, right? We've had reopening, the vaccination starting. We had people wanting to get back outside and see family. Government put money in people's pockets. Like that relief is running out. That low-hanging fruit of opening up is running out. So, or it will at least soften, right? Well, so then it's a big question. Do we keep these wage gains, how do we do it from a policy basis? I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're mourning the death of Richard Trumka, E.J. Dionne, with that wonderful essay today in the Washington Post. And there's talk about labor share finally re-grabbing something from the era from Ronald Reagan forward. Do you buy a policy shift or not? So I've argued that we are seeing a sea change in monetary and fiscal policy. I really do feel the Fed is well on its way to its new framework, thinking harder about its dual mandate, jobs too. I am more concerned about what's happening on the Hill. Right, We're seeing an infrastructure package, which is amazing. We've had years of waiting for infrastructure week. It's really happening. And yet, that's not, we have an over $20 trillion economy, $1 trillion over 10 years. 
in our like productive capacity, that's not much. And what I really want to see and what we learn from putting money in people's pockets is if we extend the child allowance, if we invest in our next generation, that's where the payoffs will come. And it's really not guaranteed that we're going to see that. Well, that's what we need for long term growth and long term supportive workers. Claudia, in the meantime, it is countdown to Wednesday where we get the latest consumer price index, the read on how much prices for the average consumer are going up, and they are going up in staples and aspects and things that people buy every day. Can you give us a sense of what you think the Fed's response should be of this? Because frankly, it is the most onerous for the lowest income Americans. Right. So I think the Fed has been right about this from the start. I think the data is coming in in terms of team transitory is winning here. We know that the factors, if you look under the hood, the factors of this extraordinary jump in prices, like I don't want to underscore the pain that this caused, but these are not things that are staying with us. I mean, just the used motor vehicles, like those prices are coming back down. Right. We should not change course and abandon the millions of workers who are not back to work just because we're going to have six months of prices that moved up faster than we expected. So I think it's just it would be so wrong to change course on some CPI numbers. And and a lot of people would agree with you, Claudia, but then they pair that with this increase, this divergence between uh, the wealthiest individuals and the lowest income individuals, especially because asset prices have been one of the most inflated areas of the economy. And so, frankly, a lot of people say the Fed's policies have only widened this divide. How can you say, okay, well, maybe so, but it's worth it? Yeah, I am extremely frustrated with how much focus the Fed is getting right now. We need Congress to act. There are ways to address wealth inequality, and the Fed does not have them, right? And there, there's taxes, there are transfers. The Fed cannot go this alone. And the idea that raising interest rates a couple you know, basis points, quarter basis points, is going to fix a longstanding problem in the U.S. economy, it's ludicrous, right? Like, we're just to think that yeah. could really move the ball, it, it's frightening to me that we've put that much power in the Fed. Claudia, you've always been equal opportunity. You go after conservatives, and frankly, folks, <laughs> Claudia Sam is fearless about going after liberals as well. Claudia Sam, there's a conservative angst out there. They're worried about the debt. They're worried about the deficit. You know, there's an institutional conservative thrust that says, wait a minute, how do you respond to an inbred American conservative ethos? They're really worried about the size of government. I mean, we saw really massive tax cuts under Trump that had incredible increases in the deficit. And now to be saying we can't we can't raise taxes. This is not about the deficit, which I mean, we should be concerned about. Right. Like you should watch these numbers. The debate right now is do we want to set up social programs that are going to be wildly popular, like the child benefit when it gets working? That's putting government more in a role, whereas conservatives have really looked to the private sector, looked to individuals, and it's just not enough. Lisa, this is just incredibly important to me. If we have a natural disaster like a pandemic, we can't get any kind of shift in our child care policy relative to other equivalent nations? 
I think a lot of people are questioning this, which goes to the fierce debate that's happening in Washington. And the reason why, frankly, there's disagreement even among the Democrats about how big that uh, that infrastructure plan, the human infrastructure plan should be. Uh, and then the pushback that you were talking about from the conservative stance. Claudia, you did raise a really important point that you are frustrated with how much power people have seemed to have given the Fed. The question is going forward, do they take that power or do they actively fight against it? Because right now, especially with a balance sheet that's $8 trillion and poised to expand further, a lot of people say, well, look, you might say you don't hold a lot of power, but for all intents and purposes, you're subsidizing the U.S. debt load. That is a political act. Right. It is. They are taking a risk, right? But what they are trying to do is stay out of the way of Congress. Right. We know after the Great Recession, too much weight was, I mean, really responsibility was put on the Fed to do it alone and get us back to full employment. And the Fed doesn't have the tools to do it alone. It knows that it can play a supporting role. It can play an important one. And it has during the pandemic. Jay Powell said over and over again, Congress do more. And they have not backed off on that narrative. Yeah. So I think that's what the Fed understands. And as long as we get both pieces... That's good. But without Congress and long-term investments, we're not going to see this sustained in a way that we so could. Right. We're in this moment. We could do this. Let's broaden out. Uh, one thing that we talk about every week as, the, as we get the initial jobless claims is this worker mismatch. And at about 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern time, we're going to be getting the job openings, the jolts data for the month of June. And there is this question of why there are so many people who are out of work. And then you have all of these employers saying we can't find any workers. What is the why behind this? What are we missing? Right. I think we really have to keep our eye on who is in the labor force, who is coming back. What was really unprecedented in this labor market was the fact that we had millions of workers just leave jobs, right? In what was a very severe recession. So a lot of this are parents who needed to help stay home with their kids for homeschooling. A lot of it was older workers who were afraid of dying, right? So we need to bring them back. And on Friday, there was a lot of good news in a million jobs, like that is great news. A lot of that were people being recalled from temporary layoff. We didn't see the needle move enough on the out of the labor force and the long-term unemployed. And we know historically long-term unemployed are tough to get back because that it's, yeah. the longer you're out, the harder it is to match you back up. So I think that's what we're seeing. And the last mile is going to be the hardest here. Claudia, we got to leave it there. Claudia Sam, thank you okay. so much. Jane Family Institute, Great. and just always interesting, uh, linking in our actual market economics into academics and the policy. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.